Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, we are brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash adherent apologetics. Today I'm joined by Caleb Cumberland. He's also known as the Dry Apologist. He runs a YouTube channel that talks about Christian apologetics and philosophy from a, a Catholic perspective. Uh, today I'm going to be talking with Caleb about the problem of animal suffering and things along these lines. Uh, Caleb wrote a book recently just about looking at an argument for God and answering the problem of evil. So Caleb, welcome. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. Awesome. Well, I'm really glad you joined me, Caleb. Um, just for everyone listening today, what we're going to do is we're kind of just going to walk through uh, the problem of am animal suffering. We're going to be talking about it. We're going to be looking at it from like a logical form and an evidential form, just walking through that. And if you have live questions at the end, we'll be sure to answer everyone listening's questions uh but just to start off caleb if people don't know like who you are or what you do could you talk a little bit about like yourself and what you do yeah definitely so i have a youtube channel called dry apologist where i do discussions kind of like this and uh, moderate some debates i've also debated on a number of different channels including this one so it's pretty much what i do in regards to all of this Mm. And don't let the dry apologist name like I feel like I might throw some people off, but like Caleb, you're a very formidable apologist. You've debated people like, um, even though I know you're not a professional philosopher, like an Alex Malpass um, on philosophy. So I'm curious, like, what got you interested in like philosophy and apologetics and stuff like that? Yeah, I think so. I studied philosophy as an undergrad, and then I got a theology degree in graduate school, and I taught theology at the high school level for a little while. So. And I don't do that now, but I'm still pretty interested in debating and apologetics. So, Yeah, what got you interested in like philosophy and apologetics and looking at these big questions? Yeah. yeah, I think probably like when I got to college, that was when like the new atheist movement was taken off. And I just like it just really sparked my interest. I didn't really know anything about apologetics or philosophy. And I was just started watching debates online and, you know, just got really interested so I thought it was a really important issue that needed to be responded to so my interest just grew mm. um also someone was asking just in the chat if you could just speak up a little bit Caleb just um if you could do oh, that okay. that'd be awesome but so looking at these like questions of like philosoph philosophy and apologetics I love like very briefly if you could run through just kind of like what are some of the reasons you think God exists from like a philosophical perspective like i know you've been developing like an argument from depth which is interesting so i don't know if you want to talk about that or something else but like when you look at like the question of god existing like what are some of the philosophical reasons you look at that kind of suggest to you that god really does exist yeah definitely so um i really like contingency arguments so that's what i've debated the most in my debates and then the depth argument is a contingency type argument that i've developed um, not everybody likes it. So if I say it's my favorite argument, it doesn't mean other people like it. But basically, it's like a contingency type argument. But instead of appealing to the, the principle of sufficient reason, I appeal to this consideration about like uh, metaphysical or ontological depth within being. And I think from there, you could plausibly arrive at 
um, a ground of being that has the divine attributes. So that's kind yeah. of the basic gist of it. But. Yeah, definitely. Um, one last thing before we kind of look into like the problem of animal suffering for everyone listening. Could you walk through the depth argument still in a little bit more detail? I mean, I'm sure most people would be familiar with the contingency argument with the yeah. principle of sufficient reason. Like, what is this depth argument if you're going to explain it like in a minute or so elevator pitch? Yeah, let me pull up the, the premises. Okay, so premise one, and again, this will probably sound confusing to people, which I, I totally get, but basically this is the argument. If the deepest possible dimension supports the rest of reality, then the deepest possible dimension must exist. The deepest possible dimension supports the rest of reality, therefore the deepest possible dimension must exist. If the deepest possible dimension exists, then it achieves maximal compossible features, and then that type of being is God. So in case that's just really confusing and abstract to people, basically the idea is that um, there are features of reality that have greater depth, like particles have more depth than the objects they comprise, and maybe space-time has more depth than the objects that exist within space-time, and you can keep going until you're going to get to the, the ground of reality, but at that point you can't keep going because it's the ground of reality, so it's going to be plausibly be a maximized reality. There aren't going to be these deeper, possible, more fundamental features that it could take on because it's the final stopping point. So that final stopping point being this maximized reality, that's just what we mean by God. It's going to be maximized in presence and in power, intelligence, and and I argue empathy, and that you're going to get an omnibenevolent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent um, sustainer out of that. So there's more that can be said for sure, and I've done some debates on it, but I think it holds up pretty well. Um, I have a couple of brief videos on my channel also. Mm. So. Yeah, I'd encourage everyone, as always, check out Dry Apologist. There's a link down below wherever you're listening. Um, but let's talk about animal suffering, because I think it's a really interesting argument. It's probably one of the most um, foremost arguments brought up against um, theism, whether it's from evidential or logical perspective. Um, but like when you look at like the argument from in animal suffering that maybe like an atheist philosopher would make, how would you frame the argument? Like there's different ways, but like, um, like very briefly, like what is the problem of animal suffering if we look at it from like a, a, a Christian theist perspective? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's going to be really similar to the problem of human suffering. It's going to be the question of how can an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God allow creatures, sentient creatures to, to suffer, especially in extreme ways. And also when you add to that the evolutionary history, you know, there were millions of years of suffering leading up to humans of animals. And, you know, that, that just um, is a problem. So if you're going to put it in a logical form, you could say like, you know, an all loving God would, would not allow a creature to suffer in an extreme fashion, animals suffer in extreme fashion, therefore an all-loving God doesn't exist. That would be a way you could put it in the logical form. Mm. So how would you respond to like a logical form of like the problem of evil, special regards to animal suffering? Um, maybe they'll put a different analogies, like you have like rose fawn or other things like that, where it's say there's these like, seems like, especially when you look at like evolutionary history, these, these intense evils, um, assuming you accept some form of old earth where you're going to have lots of pain, lots of suffering that seems unnecessary. So like what, 
um, and answer the logical form that would say that the, these intense sufferings of animals that are just incompatible with an all loving God and all loving God wouldn't allow this. Like when you're looking at this from like a, a theodicy, so to speak, like how do you respond um, to the logical form of this kind of argument? Yeah. Yeah. So to be clear on what the logical form is, it's, it's arguing that there's actually an explicit entailed logical contradiction between God existing and there being animal suffering, or at least intense animal suffering. And the only way to, the only thing that the theist has to do to get out of this logical problem is to show that there's not a logical contradiction. So there'd be lots of different ways one could argue, um, respond to animal suffering um, on the logical problem. I'm going to get into the evidential problem in a second, but I just want to throw out a few different ways. So like there are some philosophers who will argue that animals just don't have enough um, conscious experience or rationality to um, understand that they're suffering. So they just, they don't suffer is what some philosophers would argue. And another view would be that maybe animals can undergo some kind of soul building. So if somebody likes a soul building theodicy for people, they could apply that to animals and argue that animals grow in some kind of virtue through their suffering. Or somebody could argue from like um, a fall theodicy and argue that like God um, has given us a world with natural evils, including animal sin. So we knew we'd live in a, a world in which humans sin. So then it was appropriate for God to respond with giving us um a world that's cursed in a way or has these natural evils as a, an appropriate response to kind of bring us back from our sinful state. Or somebody could argue that like fallen angels have corrupted the evolutionary process and, you know, corrupted animals. And again, none of these have to necessarily be plausible. They're just showing that if those things are, are possible and God could have justified reasons for allowing these things, even if, again, even if we can't prove it, or argue for its plausibility, it just shows there's not a logical contradiction in God allowing one of those types of scenarios. But when we get to the evidential version, it's more based on plausibility. Like, is it plausible that God would allow something like this? So um, I can go on to that, but I don't know if you have anything you want to say about that. Yeah, um, we'll just kind of like talk about these theodicies for a second, um, and then we'll go into more like the evidential problem. Um, I think one thing that's really helpful to remember, like when we're looking at like a, a logical problem of evil, whether it's with animal suffering or human suffering or divine hiddenness, all you really need to defeat a logical problem is just some sort of defeater. As you brought up, you have like conscious experience, uh, soul building, um, fallen angels. It, all you need is some sort of defeater um, when we're responding to a logical form of this argument. So I think that's something really good to bring up. One thing that I'm curious about is um, you talk about maybe animals just lacking conscious experience in a sense to really understand that they're suffering. Uh, but I think a lot of people might dispute that when you look at like maybe more advanced, maybe mammals or animals, they may have um, experience. They know they're suffering in a sense. So like, how would you respond to someone who would just say that like maybe like more advanced animals would know that they're suffering, whether they're in ex excruciating pain or something along these lines? Right. So I wouldn't def so that theodicy is usually or defense is usually called the Neo Cartesian theodicy or sometimes the Neo Thomas theodicy has been defended recently. But um, yeah, I wouldn't actually use that one because I agree it does conflict with a lot of people's intuitions and it does seem pretty implausible that, you know, well, I would say like insects probably don't know that they're suffering, but even that's debated. 
but like higher mammals um, and apes and so on probably um, do experience some kind of suffering, or at least that seems likely. But I mean, there are defenders. Like there was a book re um, recently released called Thomism and the Problem of Animal Suffering, I think is what it's called. And um, Kelk is the, the author. And he argues that animals have conscious experience, but because they lack um, higher states of rationality, they don't have proper memory to realize and to recall that they're suffering. Now, I'm not in a position to assess the plausibility of that, but there are defenders of it. They would just argue that, you know, animals act like they're suffering, but they don't, they don't have enough rationality to really realize it. Um, again, I wouldn't use that um, in a debate or something, but it's just important to be aware that there are defenders of it. Mm. So when you um, personally, Caleb, you're looking at like uh, the logical problem, what would be like your go-to like defeater um, to kind of go, um, go against this logical problem of evil regarding like animal suffering? Right. Right. So I've developed my own theodicy, um, which I've debated a little bit. It's called the perfect will theodicy. And it's a little bit tricky to understand. So I can understand if some of the listeners don't quite um, see how it connects with everything. But and this is what I wrote my short book about. But basically the way that it works is it attempts to explain all of natural evil, but then in doing so, it can also explain um, animal suffering. So the theodicy has multiple stages, but basically the way it works is, imagine God creates the world. The physical laws are all kind of interconnected. And just metaphysically, it's kind of a necessity that they're this interconnected system that God orders according to his intellect and his will. Now, if they were, if the system of laws is perfectly conformed to his will, that's what we're imagining is like the new heavens and new earth. Like that's the perfect um, heavenly you know, paradise that we're wondering why God, or we're hoping that God will bring us to at some point. But if, so if the laws are perfectly conformed to his will, you get this perfect heavenly universe. But in that type of universe, Humans are also uh, purified of any evil desires and they're um, thereby placed in this perfect relationship with God. So that's the first part of the theodicy. But I argue that it would be unjustified for God to force humans into a perfect relation with them. So he has to start us outside of that type of um, universe where the, the system of physical laws are not perfectly conformed to God's will. They're only partially conformed to God, so the, the system is only partially conformed to God's will, yet that's then a, um, a universe where the laws can lead to natural evils. So um, it's going to have an evolutionary process where animals can develop these uh, predatorial traits and they can suffer and things basically don't work out in the way that will be ideal, the way it'll work in the heavenly universe. And really this fits really well with Romans 8 that talks about the groaning of creation. So to me, um, once that theodicy is fully understood, and I know it's a little bit tricky to understand, I, I think that that really does address the, the logical and evidential argument because I'm not arguing that, you know, every amount of animal suffering is um, contributing to some good so much, but rather I'm arguing that it's just a necessary consequence of the type of universe that God had to start creation out in. And mm -hmm. then in, in regards to, to compensation for animal suffering, 
it's not essential to argue this point, but I do think it's plausible that God will give an afterlife, at least to animals that have experienced suffering. And that might sound like an unorthodox or, you know, odd view, but actually there's been some major thinkers that have argued this. I'm not Protestant, but like John Calvin and Martin Luther even seem to entertain the idea. And yeah, so I think it's plausible that God will give a kind of afterlife. Um, the animals will partake of the new heavens and new earth as well um, to compensate for their suffering. So, yeah, when you put that all together with the perfect wealth, the odyssey, and the, the animal afterlife, I think that does address the problem of animal suffering. But how plausible one finds that, I mean, not everybody's going to find um, a given argument plausible. They may like another argument as well. I mean, personally, I also think like the fallen angel, the Odyssey that's had some uh, major defenders like Greg Boyd and some others. And I mean, that's a defensible the Odyssey as well. Um, I don't think it's as plausible, but I think it's um, possible. Mm. Uh, one kind of follow up regarding like your personal theodicy that you've worked on developing. It's a really interesting idea to think about. And one thing that I thought about as I've kind of like pondered through is it almost sounds like I know I don't think you're saying this, but it sounds like you're almost saying like there's we're in almost like a causally uh, closed system that God's created. It might be like some sort of like uh, misconception of your view. I don't know if you're, that's accurate, but like um, just for people listening, if you don't know what causal closure is, it's the idea that it's necessarily like sealed off from the outside. There's no causes um, super natural in a sense coming into the universe everything happens according to the laws as it is so like what do you think about like causal closure and how that relates to like your theodicy that you've been developing yeah and i should note that my theodicy in some ways um, was inspired by thomas ord's views although i think that it's better than his view but of course that's <laughs> what i'm going to argue now ord's view i think does have problems with and that's a good point that you bring up. Like, I, I think his view has problems explaining uh, miracles. But under my view, so it's not causally closed. God can still bring about miracles and such. It's just that the, you could say the teleological, the teleology of our universe, it's still um, guided by God. And it's still, God still interacts with the world and intervenes. But it's more limited in how much he brings about. So what I'm imagining is that, Miracles also come about due to a kind of law-like process, but the amount of miracles is more limited because the teleology of the world is only partially conformed to God's intentions overall. So some miracles are brought about, but maybe but not as many as otherwise would be, is a way to look at it. So it's not causally closed. Things are still conforming to what God wants in part. It's just that not um, everything is brought about um, overall ideally. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm tracking with you. Um, we'll move to more evidential form for now. I do want to say I saw a few questions come in already. We'll be answering some questions at the end. So questions, super chats, anything like that, we will answer those here in about 20 minutes or so. We'll just see how it goes. But let's talk about the evidential problem of evil. This is, um, I think most philosophers are kind of going away from logical problems because I think all just the need for one with just having one defeater can really like um, damage the argument. But with an evidential problem, um, maybe like a Paul Draper, who's done a lot of work on the problem of evil, will say, you know, hey, Caleb, we have these, these two competing hypotheses here. We have theism, where there's this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving being. Um, and then we have atheism here, where there is no God, nothing like God. Um, is to, like a typical uh, definition, I believe. And we have this idea of animal suffering, um, this pain that animals are going through. And it would seem like that uh, this 
pain that animals will go through is inconsistent um, with a theistic hypothesis. Like if there's an all above, all loving, all knowing, all those things being, it seemed like these animal suffering probably wouldn't happen. But if we have atheism here, we're in this causally closed system. There is no God, nothing like God. Um, it would be consistent that there is animal suffering. So when you're tackling uh, this problem from an evidential perspective, like where do you start um, in terms of this like Im important problem? Right. Yeah. So the evidential argument is going to be similar to the logical form, but instead it's going to say that while there might not be a logical contradiction between God existing and there being suffering, it still seems really implausible or really unlikely that God would allow the kinds of suffering that we find. So like Rose Fawn, like, you know, being an example, like would God, you know, what good purpose is there in God mm -hmm. allowing like a deer to, to burn to death in the forest or fire or something, or Paul Draper compares these two um, hypotheses. So he says like the hypothesis of indifference being like, there is no benevolent being guiding the universe or the hypothesis of theism that argues that there is. And he says like, given what we observe about pain and pleasure, you know, what better explains the data. And I think that, you know, some theodicies are going to um, have more difficulty. And that's why the, the problem of animal suffering is rather difficult, because some of the traditional theodicies only, only um, plausibly apply to, to humans. Mm -hmm. Now, I do think that, you know, the perfect wealth theodicy that I've developed does address both Roe and, and Draper's um, type arguments, because it's basically... Um, conceding what they're arguing like yeah there are events of animal suffering that don't serve a greater purpose within our universe and also the processes um, don't match what we would expect a um, omni being you know who's omnibenevolent and all-powerful the type of processes to establish for our universe but I'm arguing that's because our universe doesn't perfectly um, conform to God's intentions right until he could, and that's the other thing I should clarify. Until he perfectly does conform the laws to his intellect and will, and then that transforms our universe into the new heavens and new earth. So that's where I bridge the gap between, like, you know, why is our universe this way when we expect God will create a much better universe in the future? And um, so, yeah, I think that the theodicy I've developed does plausibly respond to, because, you know, Draper, I, I, I grant, like, yeah, the hypothesis of indifference does look plausible, but I'm arguing, like, why it looks that way. I'm saying it's because the, the universe isn't perfectly conformed to God's intellect and will. And at that point, it's just kind of a, a stalemate, whether you find that theodicy overall plausible or not, and whether you find theism plausible. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing to kind of bring up here is um, it kind of relates to a lot of what we've been talking about is like, why doesn't God just, um, this isn't specifically relating to animal suffering, but more of just the problem of evil in general. Um, why doesn't God just create the perfect universe now? Um, why can't God create perfect creatures now who would like freely choose to be in him or something along these lines? Like why go through this process where there's all this suffering and all this death um, in this life just to bring it all in? together in another life like why why do we have to go through this with all this pain and suffering first right so i argue that because um so going back to the theodicy i developed that it would be i'm arguing that it would be wrong for god to force us into a perfect relation with him but if that's the case 
then he's going to have to start us outside of the universe that would entail that. And then that's going to be a universe with laws that only partially conform to his intellect and will. Because if he, if uh, to start us in a universe without suffering, the only way that God can ensure that is going to be if the laws are perfectly conformed to his intellect and will. But that's going to be a universe that purifies people of all evil desires and because the, the laws are perfectly operating the way God wants. And that's going to force us into relation with him. So that's where I'm arguing. He has to start us out in this pre-heavenly universe so that we can then freely journey to God. And so, so that's, that's it in a nutshell. Mm, yeah. So I think a big part of your theodicy is like value on free will. Um, so like what why do you think free will like in terms of like in your theodicy, like what's so valuable about it? Like I think because obviously um, maybe less on the Catholic side of the thing, but on the Protestant side of the side, we have a lot of people who are determinists in terms of being Calvinist. Um, like what, why why is free will so valuable, you think? Because it seems to play a very important part in the theodicy you've been developing. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that technically it doesn't need free will. So I think that it can work with determinism. I, I'm not a determinist, but it's, it's more um, play on the role, the idea of autonomy. So I think that it's, it seems at least plausible that it would be uh, morally essential that God would not force a relationship. Now, we technically don't have to have free will for that. Like it would be wrong even if I and you lack free will, if I had some device that like overtook your mind so that you then like, you know, whatever. But like if I were to like force or like somebody else, I were to force some kind of relationship, that would be wrong even if we lack free will. So it's more about autonomy, though I do think it's it's plausible like that it works with free will. And I do believe we have free will. But, but the, I guess the key point I'm making is it's not so much that free will is valuable. It's more that it's intrinsically morally important and necessary that God doesn't force a relationship. And I'm arguing that that's just a moral principle that God can't violate. And since God is a perfectly moral being, he can't do anything that's immoral. Hmm. Um, so another question I have kind of looking at this evidential problem is, isn't it possible that God could have created a universe, say, with maybe like, 1% less animal suffering or something along these lines, you'll see kind of like an argument like this, like it, there could have been conceivably just maybe a little less suffering um, than there is, especially in terms of like the animal realms. Like, what do you think about that idea? Yeah. Well, that would, that would be a fair objection perhaps against a different theodicy. But if I'm arguing that there's this limitation, this sort of metaphysical limitation that God um, doesn't totally determine because it's because these laws are only partially conformed to his intellect and will, then basically the, the way the laws end up working is it's going to be a, um, a necessary result. It's not going to be something that God could have um, shortened any. Mm. Okay. Um, so one thing that you brought up earlier that I think would be interesting to dive into a couple more questions here and then we'll go to some Q&A um, is this idea of like animals having souls because I think it's a very like um, interesting hypothesis that a lot of people may have never really seriously thought about so like uh, when you're looking at the question of like do animals have souls like what are you thinking in terms of this really interesting theological question because I think it could have some implications on in terms of the problem of animal suffering depending on how it goes. Yeah, so the traditional idea, at least going back to like Aristotle and then like Aquinas, like 
that animals, that any living thing has a soul. There's just different kinds of souls. So there's, you know, vegetative soul, animal soul, rational soul. So the idea that animals have a soul traditionally really isn't a controversial idea. The controversial idea is do animals have a soul that goes to heaven? Now, I'm inclined to think they don't, but the, the new heavens and the new earth is a kind of, is a resurrected state. So animals would uh, be resurrected in their bodies. And I don't see what would be impossible about God doing that. Um, the new heavens and the new earth are basically a better version of our current heavens and earth. So I don't see why God couldn't uh, resurrect animals in that state. Um, but yeah, the idea that they have a soul, though, really shouldn't be controversial if we define soul simply as, you know, the life force of the body. Um, any living thing can plausibly have a soul. Mm. Um, one interesting idea that kind of came up in the live chat before we go to some questions is uh, Susan brought in this quote from Andrea T, where it talks about this idea that um, uh, through the bad, there can be good can come from it. Um, I'm curious, like um, in terms of animal suffering, do you think this is a possible like partial theodicy in a sense that like greater goods can come from like forms of animal suffering? Yeah. Could I see the second part of? Yes, here it is. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, definitely like when arguing a theodicy, different people are going to have different intuitions. So there are some who argue that these greater goods that come from um, animal suffering or human suffering that we just can't see, or maybe we can see like soul building. And I'm not a huge fan of those types of theodicies because I think they do run into some difficulties when we're thinking about horrendous suffering. And I, and I, th I don't think that God plans events of horrendous suffering but so you can defend that view so sure i do think ultimately god's going to respond with greater goods you know being the, the new heavens and the new earth but um you know do individual events of animal suffering do they lead to greater goods in and of themselves it's definitely possible you know it would just depend upon what theodicy you're arguing um so yeah you can defend it Mm. Uh, one last thing I kind of, or a couple things here, but one thing I thought about is you talk a lot about um, this idea that it's important to remember there's going to be this new heavens and this new earth where God's going to create um, some sort of like system in order where everything's going to be like perfect. So like, I think that um, maybe some skeptics or atheists may listen to that and say, it sounds like almost like a cop out. Like, you know, you're saying in, in the future, it's going to all be perfect, but how do we know that we really can't know that's true. Um, here we are now. It seems like you're maybe just trying to make an excuse for why there's suffering now, um, different kinds of lines of argumentation that can go through that. But like in general, how do you, would you respond to like that kind of claim to uh, your theodicy? Right. Yeah. So, I think the important thing to always keep in mind is that in offering a theodicy or a defense when responding to the problem of evil is that the burden of proof is on the, the person making the problem of evil. So if they're arguing that there's some kind of contradiction or some kind of implausibility within theism or within Christianity, they have the burden to justify that claim. So if I'm making appeals that... Um, of a level of plausibility, as long as they absolve the difficulty, then I'm justified in doing that. So they may not believe in a heaven or believe in God, but that's the point. They're trying to show there's some inconsistency in my view, but I really don't think it's a cop-out because this is exactly what 
uh, theism and Christianity has been arguing all along that God's going to make things right. And, you know, I'm offering an explanation why they're not right right now, but God's going to be making them right in the future. So as long as that's a coherent uh, system, you know, I don't, I don't see a, a problem with it. They can call it a cop-out if they want, but they, what they need to do is point out what's logically inconsistent about the explanation or what's morally problematic about it. Um, yeah, awesome. Um, we'll do one more question here, and then we'll open up for some Q&A. If there's questions, there's a few. We'll get probably through most or all of it. Um, uh, very briefly, like we've talked about this, but I think um, in terms of at least in like a debate form, the most popular kind of like phrasing this argument would be maybe like a rose fawn um, burning in the forest, fire dies um, through burn to death. Um, something like along those lines. And I, I think I kind of know how you'd respond, like when these popular theodicies or maybe these animals who are just killing other animals and this animal has like a short brute life of suffering, like um, like we're when, uh, in like a debate format when this kind of like uh, argument from like some sort of like theoretical idea of like suffering that happens in the, in the animal kingdom, how do you respond briefly? Like what's kind of like the direction you go when these kind of analogies are brought forth in debates? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely I mean, just go back to my, my same theodicy. It takes a little bit of time to work out, but I would just argue, you know, there are examples of at least what seem to be horrendous suffering that we wouldn't expect that God would um, allow for. And um, that's, that is a, a prima facie difficulty for theism, but then I would just walk through the theodicy and, and try to account for it like that. And you know, so far in the debates I've done, it, it's, I think it's held up well. So, mm. I think it'd be interesting for people just because you're very well versed in um, your philosophy and your apologetics. You really know your stuff. Maybe just for a second, who have you debated and like what topics? Because you've really, you've, you've done a loop around in terms of debating, including you debated here actually once. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've done a number of debates. I've debated T-Jump a couple of times. I debated Alex Malpass. I debated Skylar Fiction a couple of times and Dr. Josh Bowen. Um, let's see, I debated um, Floyd FP. I've debated um, Ross Burns a couple of times. One of the times on here, I debated Ben Watkins. Um, Debated. He goes by Tweet of Fun on Twitter. Um, his name's Adam. Done some other debate. Oh, I debated Randolph. With, I think I debated him a week after you did, actually. <laughs> um, Randolph Richardson. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a lot of the ones that I've done. There's some others, but yeah. yeah Brenda. I debated Brenda. You've been around. Um... So what we'll do now is uh, thank you so much for all your responses, Caleb. We'll turn it in uh, into Q&A. We have about 20 minutes left, so uh, I think we'll be able to answer any questions, super chats if you want to support the show, um, things like that. Um, the first thing we have here is a super chat from Sigifredo. Thank you again, Sigifredo, for your super chat. Always appreciate your support and your really important questions. Um, he says, Genesis 128 says, To fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every creature that moves on this ground on the ground does that relate to animal suffering um slash consumption um saying that like humans are above animals and god's almost in a sense like maybe like sponsoring animal suffering in a sense he might be trying to argue 
Yeah, that could relate. I mean, certainly I think that humans have a higher, um, you know, dignity and be made in the image and likeness of God. Um, and of course, this verse does give uh, precedence to that, but um, it doesn't, it wouldn't explain though, like why God allows animals to suffer, like why he made them to, to like prey upon each other and such. Um, it would give some credence to like that humans can use animals, but it would still be a difficulty, like why God created it in that kind of way. Um, you know, like it, it does talk about in scripture, like that the the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. You know, again, I take that as a vision of the new heavens and new earth. So that's some biblical evidence that animals will be in the new heaven and new earth. But, but yeah, I think that this verse in Genesis can give some credence to the idea that humans do have a kind of... Um, rulership over animals but in a respectful way mm. uh we'll go to another question here from the program which says why does the drywall polish just always look so important in his thumbnail in his youtube profile picture well because that's the picture that i chose but i don't know that's just i thought that it captured my personality well so I'm curious, like, uh, you, you go by the dry apologist. What does that mean? Like, why do you go by the dry apologist? It's definitely an interesting yeah. thumbnail. Yeah. Well, I was just trying to think of something to kind of, like, beat people to the punch because I tend to be more low-key and um, introverted. So I was just trying to, like, you know, throw that out there first as a way to just just kind of a joke. <laughs> well, I mean, I like it. Um, another super chat here from City Fredo. Again, thank you so much for your super chat. Thank you so much for your support. And thank you for your really important question. Uh, he says, or he or she says, why does Leviticus describe the clean and unclean animal? If accepting a new covenant, does this um, come in the form of penal substitution relating to uh, God's wrath slash needs? So I think there's two separate questions here. Um, first about like clean and unclean animals, maybe if that relates to animal suffering and kind of like um, penal substitution and looking at like the theology of the atonement and like um, just kind of looking at that and uh, relating that to like maybe the problem of evil in a sense. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would look at this as directly tying to animal suffering, but in regards to the questions, I would say clean, clean distinction, of course, uh, at least one idea is that it's kind of a precursor to, well, it was kind of um, meant to establish a legal code where there's a sort of a holiness or separation that Israel has from the other nations. But, you, you know, I'm not an Old Testament expert. That's just one idea in that. But in regards to the second, um, yeah, I don't accept a penal substitution view of the atonement, but regards to the question, I wouldn't look at it as satisfying God's wrath, but as a way for the, the um, you know, Israelites in the Old Testament to um, atone for their sins, not in the sense like Jesus atoned for sins, but to do something to, um, to as recompense for their sin to kind of help um, push them away from sinning. So, I mean, that, that would be a way to look at it. But again, I'm not an expert on those things. Yeah, well, thank you for your question, Sigifredo. And I saw in the chat you were speaking some Spanish, so um, do hables espanol? That's like all the Spanish I know. I'm curious if that's your native language. Um, 
the programmer says, uh, you, this is relating to uh, not necessarily animal suffering, but I know you're a big fan of contingency arguments. Um, says, do you think the doctrine of the Trinity can go together with the contingency argument? Atheist philosopher Dr. Alex Malpass disputes this. What are your thoughts? I'd be interested to know where he disputes that. Um, but yeah, actually, I had a dialogue on this on another stream, not a stream, but on a comment section um, yesterday. But anyways, I would argue, no, it doesn't. It does pose a difficulty for the contingency argument. So just to go through that real quick, because if we're going to argue that God isn't contingent, then that means he can't have contingent properties. But it, the Trinity seems like it's con a contingent property because we can ask, why is God a Trinity and not some other number of persons? And if there's not an obvious reason why, then it doesn't seem obvious why God would be a necessary being. But if you argue that the Trinity is contingent, then it seems like God's contingent. So it seems really difficult to argue the contingency argument and also be a Trinitarian. Now, I disagree with this because I think that all that you need to account for in the contingency argument is something within the necessary being to explain the features and explain contingencies. So with the Trinity, I'm going to argue that while I don't exactly know why God is a Trinity, I think that's a mystery. I can still argue that the persons of the Trinity are explained within God. So, you know, the second person proceeds from the first person under my uh, Trinitarian theology, the Father and the Son. It's uh, still um, so. Can you go backwards. The contingency. It's a. It's a necessity within God, but it still has an explanation. So hopefully that makes sense. Could you repeat the last part that you said? I think you cut out there for about like 10 or 15 seconds. Oh, yeah. I think we were cutting out. Yeah. So to reiterate, it's not a conflict because it would be a conflict if we were saying that there is no explanation why God's a trinity. There is still an explanation. The explanation, though, comes from within God. The It comes from within the processions within God. So the Father is the more uh, foundational person, not because he creates the, the Son and the Holy Spirit, but because they proceed, the Son proceeds from the Father, and then the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the Trinity still has an explanation within God, but it's, still, but it's also a necessity. It would only be a conflict with the contingency argument if we're arguing that the Trinity has no explanation. It's just a brute fact, but we're not arguing that. We're arguing that it's a, ne that it's a necessity, but it also has an explanation. There's more that can be said, but that's kind of how it go about it. And I know um, Josh Rasmussen takes that type of approach also. So, Yeah, the Trinity is definitely an interesting um, question to look at. So I think some people may look at what you just said and maybe say, wait, did you did Caleb just say the Trinity's created? Like the, the, the Son and the Holy Spirit were created out of the Father? Like so maybe if you just clarify that for yeah. a second. Yeah, I definitely, yeah, I definitely don't want to say that. Um, now, not that they're created, but I hold the view, and I know not all Trinitarians hold this view, but the traditional view is that the, the Son is begotten by the Father, and then the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's not a creation, though, because they're all the same one being, but there's a procession. So, you know, like, um, you know, like the, Jesus being the Word, the Word proceeds from, you know, God the Father, and then the Holy Spirit is their spirit. So that would be the... the Testament language, but the, the tradition has been that there are processions within God, but it's not a creation because they're not separate beings, 
it's processions within the same being. Mm-hmm. Um, the programmer has one more question here, I believe it is. Um, and it says, since evolution is a brutal process, why would God use this process to create living beings and then restore the earth in the end? Couldn't this be achieved without evolution? Yeah. So there'd be a couple of different, there obviously be different ways depending upon the theodicy that one adopts. You know, if one takes the fallen angel theodicy, of course, they could argue that the angels corrupted the creation process and evolution didn't have to be a brutal process. Again, I don't take that theodicy, but that would be a way to respond. But, you know, going back to the perfect wealth theodicy, I'm going to argue that our uh, universe has... um, Um, law-like processes but these law-like processes aren't perfectly conformed to God's will and they're only partially conformed to God's intellect and will and that's going to bring about a creation process that is going to have things that God doesn't um, fully intend so that's why the process is um, brutal in itself now an evolutionary process in and of itself I actually think it's pretty plausible that God would establish that um just because there's a there's a majesty to it and some will appeal to that as a theodicy they'll say like well the evolutionary process is so um majestic like that that the goodness and aesthetics of that justifies the the brutality i don't find that plausible but it does seem to plausibly explain why god might bring about an evolutionary process but it doesn't explain the brutality of it. But I think my theodicy does explain the brutality of it. So, Sifredo uh, says, "Como están frijoles?" means how you been. I just brought this up because I'm pretty sure Sifredo frijoles is beans. Um, I'm trying to remember what my Spanish education in high school was, but I'm pretty sure uh, you're messing with me there, Sifredo. Could be wrong though. Um, Susan says, um, "Is Caleb Eastern Orthodox?" I believe you're Roman Catholic, but um, what's your kind of take? Yeah, I'm Roman Catholic. Hmm. Well, I mean, Caleb, we've gone through all the questions today. Uh, so much good stuff. I'm curious if you have kind of like any like last thoughts, things you want to bring up before we start to wrap things up here. Um, not too much. I would definitely recommend that if people are interested, I do have some videos and debates on my channel on this if they're still kind of confused about you know, things that I've said. And I do, you know, Q&A and videos. Anybody has a question, they can message me always on Twitter or on my YouTube channel. And I'd also recommend watching my debate with Ben Watkins because we go through a lot of stuff on the problem of evil. And he's a pretty accomplished atheist debater. And I think that that's pretty helpful as well. Um, so. Yeah, Ben is awesome. So uh, great stuff, Caleb. I, I want to say once again, thank you for coming on. and encourage everyone uh, to subscribe to The Dry Apologist, a great YouTube channel. So much good stuff out there, Caleb. I really hope um, you get more and more subscribers. Uh, you definitely deserve it. There's lots of great content out there. You're very knowledgeable. You know your stuff. Um, I want to say thank you to everyone who's tuned in today. Sadie Fredos, Lam Loren, John DePu, Nick Quint, everyone else that's joined us live. I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. Um, especially Sadie Fredo, thank you for supporting Super Chat. Um, I do want to say, as always, thank you to all of our supporters who keep the show possible. Um, as a student, this is how I fund um, kind of like my job. Um, so I appreciate everyone's support. If you enjoy the show, you could support the show on patreon.com slash apologetics or become a member on YouTube. Uh, you can support for one two five dollars a month whatever you can definitely all all helps uh but for now caleb uh thank you so much for your time once again um appreciate it uh and yeah just thank you man 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope you enjoy and have a good evening. God bless.